Give the people what they want. Give the people what they want. Give the people what they want. Your weekly movement news roundup. It's Friday the 13th. That is the 13th of May. Inauspicious day um, in many parts of the world. We're coming to you as Give the People What They Want brought to you every week from People's Dispatch with Prashant and I'm uh, and Zoe and I'm Vijay from uh, Globetrotter. It's been a tough week. On the 11th of May, an Israeli sniper fired um, a series of bullets at a number of reporters from Al-Quds News, from Al Jazeera, other publications. These reporters had gone to Jenin in the northern part of the occupied Palestinian territory to cover an Israeli military raid on a camp in Jenin. Um, during this raid, the snipers uh, took fire at the journalists who were wearing blue flak jackets with the word press emblazoned on the front of them. One of the journalists, Shirin Abu Akleh, was struck in the head and almost immediately was killed. She was taken immediately by her colleagues or as quickly as they could because the snipers didn't stop firing. They had a hard time reaching her. All of this was caught on tape and can be watched online. There is no controversy uh, about this. At the hospital, there was an autopsy. Um, in the autopsy, it became very clear that she had been shot by a sniper's bullet. Um, the Palestinian Authority are claiming this uh, unequivocally. The reason they don't want to do a joint investigation with the Israelis, they have said, is because they fear the Israeli government would whitewash an investigation. Then the um, Israeli military forces raided the home of Shirin Abu Akleh, who had just been killed by an Israeli sniper. They raided her home, removed insignia of Palestine, including ordinary Palestinian flags, harassed her family. And then on the 13th of May, two days later, when she came to be buried in Jerusalem, the Israeli military forces attacked the funeral party. It is said to be one of the largest funerals seen in Jerusalem in years. The images which we want to bring you show directly the brutal assault by the Israeli forces against a peaceful funeral procession. Who was Shirin Abu Akleh that she was then targeted and murdered while reporting a story in Jenin? Who was she that her house had to be raided? And then who was she that her funeral had to be attacked in this form? Shirin Abu Akleh, born in 1971, worked most of her life as a journalist. She is a U.S. citizen. This is a very important point. She is a U.S. citizen. United States government hasn't really made much of a noise about the assassination of a journalist who carries a U.S. passport. Shirin Abu Akleh started work with Al Jazeera in 1997, um, became the face of Al Jazeera's coverage of the um, occupation of the Palestinian people, the resistance of the Palestinian people, and so on. She was 
as many people have said a household name she was the person that you came to uh, to watch i met her once in jerusalem extraordinarily kind and nice person um a very careful listener somebody that we admire as journalists uh, for their experience their wisdom their capacity to report the story as courageously as possible 20 plus media organizations including people's dispatch came together and you can read the statement at the people's dispatch site to pay homage to shireen abu akhle and to condemn her killing birzeit university has just announced that they will have a annual lecture in her name on may 11th and afford fellowships in her name uh, to commemorate this great palestinian journalist before we move ahead with our other stories i want to say that on the 1st of may in santiago in chile another journalist francisca sandoval was shot she was shot by a thug who was very apparently but very much in evidence working closely with the chilean police yesterday on the 12th of may francisca sandoval this young progressive reporter succumbed to that bullet wound from give the people what they want we'd like you to know friends that we can't bring you the news if the powers that be kill journalists we just can't bring you the news if they continue to kill journalists we remember from the platform of our show shirin abu akle francisca sandoval and all the other journalists who have been killed in the line of fire killed in the line of fire that's what it feels like in colombia where there's an election ongoing killed in the line of fire people being silenced for supporting one candidate um in particular zoe what's happening in colombia Well there's been a, a worrying development as often happens in Colombia unfortunately the mayor of Medellin Daniel Quintero was suspended by the inspector general of the nation which is an entity that essentially is sort of the watchdog for the institutions in Colombia um he was suspended for posting a short video which shows him shifting into first gear and saying changes in first and this is a slogan of the movement supporting the progressive ticket of Gustavo Petro and Francia Marquez hours after he posted this video the inspector general pronounced on social media and to the public saying that he would be suspended from his position as mayor of Medellin he was elected by popular vote of course democratic election and he was suspended within hours because of posting this video um it's extremely worrying that this happened uh there have been multiple irregularities happening for example on supporters of Federico Gutierrez Fico who's the leading conservative candidate in fact the historic pact has raised many of these complaints with the procuraduría which is the inspector general of the nation asking them to investigate fraudulent um pronouncements many different elected officials members of the institution supporting his candidacy a lot of different irregularities occurring and those have not received any response however this very short video by the mayor of Medellin within hours he's suspended um in response to this Gustavo Petro has called it a coup the beginning of a coup process against the the movement for change 
the push towards progressive politics in Colombia, there have been persistent mobilization since this decision was announced. People are in the streets in Medellin. They're accompanying Daniel Quintero, demanding a return to institutionality, denouncing the violation and the subordination of democracy. Uh, this, his suspension also breaks the IACHR convention on democracy. So there's many things at play here. And it also suggests the lengths that the Colombian state is willing to go to and the tools that it really has at its disposition to impose its political preference. Um, and I say that because, as I mentioned, they have not taken any actions against the very blatant irregularities uh, in support of, for example, Federico Gutierrez. The president of the country, Van Duque, has also already expressed his support of this ticket, and we're not seeing any action taken on that front. Um, Gustavo Petro is calling it a coup. There's calls for people to mobilize in support of democracy, but it's very important that leading up to this presidential election that will happen in just over two weeks, that we very much keep a close eye on Colombia. A lot of these moves, we know that electoral fraud does not only happen on the day of voting, which of course it also happened in a large scale on, in March during the legislative elections. There were hundreds of and thousands of votes actually that were discounted from the historic pact that their team of lawyers has been going to every single polling station to recount the votes and make sure that those votes are, are, are counted. But what I mean to say is that electoral fraud is not only this, but it is the whole entire process that happens leading up to these elections, killing people who are supporting this progressive ticket, which has already happened. Members of the campaign have already been assassinated, intimidation, threats to the candidates. Gustavo Petro now goes on stage with bodyguards and huge shields to protect him from death threats that he's received, that Francia Marquez has received. And so democracy is really at stake. Democracy in Colombia has always been marked by blood and by violence and by intimidation. And so we must keep a close eye uh, on what's going to happen in the coming weeks. Gustavo Petro, the a candidate of the left using the word coup. That's a very significant word. We'll be paying close attention to that election as it unfolds. Talking of elections, going out there across to the Pacific Rim, um, the other side of the Pacific, there have been a number of elections. People don't seem to pay much attention. Prashant, there was an election in South Korea. Now there's an election in the Philippines. Philippines is the one that I find difficult to understand. Um, two children of two previous presidents. What's going on in the Philippines? There's a kind of right to a turn, it seems, in the Pacific Rim. Right, Vijay. Like, it's pretty accurate, actually, because uh, Ferdinand Mogbong Marcos Jr., the son of uh, the erstwhile dictator Ferdinand Marcos, and Sara Duterte, the daughter of Rodrigo Duterte, the incumbent president, together winning quite substantially, actually, in the elections that took place last weekend. It's, we have talked about this in previous episodes of the show as well. Uh, ever since these two uh, characters came together, they were, there's been a groundswell of you know, anger, a groundswell of protest from uh, people's movements about the fact that this was the culmination of a very dangerous trend where two, uh, two people, two candidates whose legacies have been extremely problematic to say the least, uh, coming together and then running a campaign which refuses to acknowledge any of these legacies or the problems that were inherent in any of these legacies. So, for instance, if you look at uh, Ferdinand Marcos Jr., the new president of the Philippines, uh, he's, of course, like I said, the son of uh, Marcos Sr., the dictator, 
was involved in the Marcos administration as well. That's important to note. He was a wise governor. It's not that, you know, it's just we're talking about his father's crime. So he was involved very much uh, part of that uh, dictatorship, which was overthrown in 1986 as a result of a mass uprising. Uh, very, you know, massive corruption, of course, but uh, equally importantly, the deaths of a large number of uh, human rights defenders, the fact that, uh, you know, a lot of people, huge thousands of disappearances that took place during this time. Uh, there's not really been a justice for a lot of that. At that point of time, the, uh, the, you know, the, the Marcos regime seemed completely discredited and that continued for a long time. But over time, the son Ferdinand Marcos Jr. has sort of reestablished himself. And it's important to note that, uh, like I said, the campaign that was conducted by both Marcos and we also know Duterte's regime has exactly done many of the same things, the disappearances, the thousands of executions that took place, the so-called war on drugs, uh, you know, where people have been uh, attacked with, murdered with very little evidence, again, something that is being investigated by the International Criminal Court. The, the idea of red tagging, where anybody who was a critic was basically accused of being associated with the banned Communist Party and was then persecuted. The vigilante attacks that took place because the state basically gave a cover, you know, it, it gave them a free hand by declaring such people as in, you know, by tagging them and you know, making it seem like they were anti-social elements. So this entire uh, ecosystem of uh, vigilante justice, of right-wing politics, and during this entire uh, election campaign, they, they, these people did not address them at all. In fact, they ran a very virulent campaign marked by a huge amount of disinformation. Uh, I think Marcos made reports as said that Marcos didn't give any interviews. Like many of the strongmen, he preferred to sort of talk directly or talk directly to the people uh, through social media and build this entire campaign based on disinformation. So all of this has been flagged by uh, organizations. It's heartening to see that protests are already begun. People from students, from human rights organizations, you know, they're already, they, they're keeping vigil, they're keeping watch to ensure that from day one to ensure that this is not, uh, you know, these egregious violations are not repeated. But I would say very difficult times for the Philippines because with the coming together of these two legacies, what has happened is that the opposition has been left in a very, uh, you know, it has been left far behind. And the same thing is happening in the Senate, in the Parliament. So what we're going to see probably is many more years of a very strong, solid right-wing administration in the Philippines. And while Marcos has said that, judge me, do not judge me by my ancestors' actions, his own actions and his own campaign itself do not give any reason to think that there is going to be a difference from what Duterte has been doing over the past many years. So very difficult times indeed uh, for the Philippines because uh, you know people were hoping that there would be a vibrant opposition candidate and a good opposition performance might help reverse some of these policy lines, but it does not look like that's going to happen for now. Wow, it's really interesting. And, and I mean, I know that People's Dispatch has done a story on it, but I think we need to really understand more about what's happening, as I said, in South Korea, in the Philippines, in Japan, you know, these are all right-wing governments. A very interesting development. You're listening to give the people what they want, coming to you from People's Dispatch. Um, that's Zoe Prashant. I'm Vijay from Globetrotter. Come to you every week. We love coming to you and bringing you stories about the world. I must say that um, this week, the stories are not all very bad, although we started at a tough note with the murder of our colleague Shirin Abu Akleh. Um, now we're coming to another interesting story. Um, the United States government going to host, a, I don't know what it's called, Summit of the Americas or something or the other in Los Angeles. Um, great place to hold it. You know, Hollywood films and the fantasy of, of uh, the forever 
United States um, and so on. Zoe, uh, bring us up to date again on that summit of the Americas. Well, the sunny summit of the Americas to be held in Los Angeles isn't getting uh, perhaps the love uh, that it that it wants to um, that Biden would like it to have. Um, in the past two weeks, we've seen a score of Latin American leaders essentially make statements, public statements, saying that they will not participate, they will not travel to Los Angeles if Cuba is excluded from the summit. Um, the Summit of Americas is organized by the Organization of American States, which, as we know, is funded by the State Department, is essentially a foreign policy arm of the United States. And Cuba has always been excluded from uh, the Organization of American States, has been excluded of most of the Summit of the Americas. And a an official from the State Department already told press, I think a month ago, that Cuba, Venezuela, and Nicaragua would be excluded from the summit. And they expected that, as it has been happening for the past you know, several years, that uh, there were conservative governments, governments that were currying the favor of the United States, that they would fall in line and say, that's fine. We don't care that our brother countries, our countries that we have relations with, that are part of our region are going to be excluded. Uh, and essentially, these leaders have said, we will not go because they're excluded. This is not you can't build Latin American unity, you can't build proposals of integration, of cooperation across the region if you're excluding key partners. Um, and it's it's quite interesting. Luis Arce of Bolivia, Xiomara Castro of Honduras, Alberto Fernandez, um, Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, all of them have said that they uh, are not supporting something that will be exclusionary. And this is very important. These aren't, and also the um, Caribbean community of, of states, CARICOM, which is, represents over a dozen nations, has also said that they won't participate. So this is a very strong showing of support. And we've seen in the last year with the uh, community of Latin American Caribbean states, CELAC, gaining more importance, gaining more legitimacy and recognition after suffering several years of right-wing governments in the region. These are the spaces of integration that the countries in Latin America, the peoples in Latin America really want. And it's important also to highlight that at the same time at the exclusionary sum of the Americas of Biden, of the State Department will be held just down the street. There's going to be a summit, a people's summit for democracy organized in Los Angeles by people's movements within Los Angeles, across the United States, across the Americas. There's a coalition of over 100 organizations that are part of this. Uh, speakers include Oscar Lopez Rivera, former Puerto Rican political prisoner, Dr. Cornel West, Dr. Vijay Prashad, <laughs> amongst others. <laughs> um, and it's going to be a very important event to really highlight uh, not only the exclusionary nature of the sum of the Americas, but really questioning what is the democracy that the United States seeks to bring to Latin America that has been trying to impose in its so-called backyard for the last century? Um, this is not a democracy that, that really it should be exporting. We see Los Angeles is one of the cities with the highest rates of inequality. One of the largest homeless populations in the United States is in Los Angeles. Um, so it's really going to be about highlighting those issues, highlighting the struggles of the people in the United States, in Los Angeles, and saying that we stand against, that these people stand against imperialism, stand against exporting this neoliberal democracy of exclusion, 
and bringing together diverse voices, diverse struggles, and um, creating a, a more integrated and diverse vision of what the people want for the future and for democracy. That is an amazing story of, of these countries just saying we're not coming. I mean, it's, it's pretty amazing. You talked about democracy and forms of democracy. We just had stories from Philippines, you know, with South Korea nearby, and we talked about the turn to the right. Well, the middle of the Indian Ocean is the beautiful country of Sri Lanka. Um, Sri Lanka has had a, you know, journey to presidential rule, increasing presidential or executive powers being centralized in the presidency. Well, it looks like the presidency the family of Mr. Rajapaksha is facing a serious, serious political challenge in a country where looks like there'll be no exit from that challenge, Prashant. Absolutely. It's been a remarkable uh, week for Sri Lanka, a remarkable couple of months, but <clears throat> especially the past week, because uh, what we know, of course, is, I mean, we've been covering this for a while, the, pro the economic crisis in Sri Lanka, disastrous impact. Uh, following decades of policies, I mean, there are quite a few policies. We had an interview a couple of uh, weeks ago with Ahiran Kadirgamar, who talked about some of them, uh, you know, from the 70s onwards, IMF-sponsored policies. We had the pandemic, the disastrous de uh, decision to stop fertilizer, uh, you know, uh, what do you call it? stop the use of uh, chemical fertilizers. All of this contributing, of course, to this crisis. But what we saw over the past two months was a, a renewed citizenry, a renewed sense of uh, protest participation in the country system with one simple slogan, which was Gota go home, which is Gota is Gota by Rajapaksha, the current president, part of the, you know, this the Rajapaksha family, which has dominated Sri Lankan politics for decades. And now uh, what we saw was just, you know, in, in about two months of protests, the legitimacy of the Rajapaksha's crumbling, you know, almost by the week, the amount of which the legitimacy was crumbling was incredible. And now his brother Mahinda was the prime minister. And what happened in the past few days was that uh, the increasingly under threat Mahindra Rajapaksha offered to resign and then his supporters attacked the main protest site in Colombo, in Sri Lanka's capital Colombo, where protesters had built a makeshift protest site, a kind of village, which is called the Gotha Goham village. So, uh, you know, uh, and this, uh, you know, very brutal attack, some horrifying visuals of people beating the supporters, beating protesters with sticks, etc., tearing down tents. And after there was like, uh, the people just rose up and the situation completely went out of control. We had the fact the ancestral home of the Rajapakshas was burnt. And, you know, the memorial to their father, for instance, was destroyed. And, you know, it's important to note that this took place in the core of their support base. And the Rajapakshas had for long dominated the Sri Lankan political situation by ethnically and politically and religiously dividing uh, people. And that was a large part of their uh, support base as well. The fact that they claimed to have been the victors of the war in which the LTT was defeated in the civil war. And, you know, that was so their, their claim to the uh, their claim to fame, their, the way by which they got support from a large part of the Sinhala community. And now their very support base itself has turned against them so drastically. It's been uh, quite a remarkable thing to see. And uh, Mahindra Rajapaksha forced to resign, of course. Interestingly, the president, Gotabaya, responding by appointing a new prime minister, and that is Ranil Vikramasinghe, another old veteran of the uh, Sri Lankan political situation for a long time. Vikramasinghe and the Rajapakshas have sort of been fighting again, you know, have been the two poles of the Sri Lankan political system. And there was fury across 
uh, Sri Lanka because Ranil Vikramasinghe is the only member of his party in parliament. And so the idea was that by the entire political uh, system, the entire political structure, and more importantly, the people on the streets were united on one demand that the president must resign. He has sort of cobbled together this compromise with this old rival and you know, put him, put him up as prime minister. But the fact remains that both the president and the prime minister do not have any solutions to this crisis, which is what uh, is driving it. So if the, if the president thinks that either by using force or by using provocation or by using political trickery, he could, uh, the government is going to solve this current crisis, that does not look likely to happen because the economic crisis is beyond you know, one president or one government or you know, president and a prime minister. It's much more structural. It is much more long-term and there is no idea in terms of how do you restructure your economy? How do you sort of get out of uh, the trap of say international institutions and the kind of funding that has taken place and austerity and neoliberal policies? So there's really not been too much thought put into that. Their only solution seems to be to go back to the IMF for another fresh loan. So it really doesn't look like all this political, uh, what do you, these political machinations by uh, the Rajapaksha along with Vikramasinghe is really going to change anything at all. The people continuing to be on the streets. There's been a flowering of uh, democracy. You know, there's been uh, the voices which are hitherto suppressed coming together. There's been a considerable amount of ethnic and religious unity as well, overcoming some of the fault lines which had been created deliberately in the over the past uh, two or three decades. So. Very, very interesting times ahead for Sri Lanka, very difficult times as well, let's be very clear, because many of these problems are not going to have an easy solution. And like I said, there has to be a, you know, the kind of political direction is still very nebulous. But it is very interesting to see the kind of uh, mobilization that has been taking place across society. I mean, we, we should say, Prashant, that Sri Lanka is actually a quite a rich country. It has mineral resources, elamite, graphite, and so on in the Manar Basin, apparently. Um, even by the government's own uh, analysis, there are sufficient oil reserves. Sri Lanka could become an exporter of oil, yet caught in this trap. 55% of its debt is held by bondholders like BlackRock sitting in New York and so on. Um, and on the table in Colombo is a document called the Millennium Challenge Cooperation Grant from the United States. The United States seeks... Uh, status of force agreement with Sri Lanka so it can build a military base there. There's a lot of pressure. People are saying that this IMF uh, deal is a leverage so the US can then get the status of forces agreement signed and can build a military base somewhere maybe on the Gulf face road, um, not far from where the Rajapakshas had to be rescued by helicopter uh, to take them to a naval base. What a story. What a story. People are not happy any longer by just signing these things and allowing uh, foreign powers to dominate them. We see that in Mali. I just did a story for Globetrotter. You can read it at People's Dispatch about how the Malian military, by the way, two coup d'etats in Mali, two coup d'etats in 2020, 2021, uh, both led by the Malian military. Um, frustration in uh, the streets and villages of Mali against the kind of way in which, um, you know, their austerity situation is, is destroying uh, the, the capacity to survive. Old conflicts with the Tuaregs not being solved um, in the middle region of Mali between pastoralists and between agriculturalists, the Fulani, the Dogon, 
all these old animosities returning on the table because there's just no money to put uh, directly from the government. And that has to do with the IMF again, the International Monetary Fund. Same kind of situation as in Sri Lanka, Prashant. It's pretty extraordinary. Um, well, of course, you know, when you uh, have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. That's a famous adage from the Central Intelligence Agency. After the NATO countries destroyed Libya, suddenly terrorism became the principal problem in Mali, Niger, and so on. And the French intervened in 2013, Operation Barkhane, intervened into Mali. Lots of civilian casualties. The French have categorically denied every single accusation of a war crime, categorically denied. So the Malian military on the 2nd of May essentially said it is illegal for French troops to be on the Malian soil and to fly above Mali. It's a pretty extraordinary event. Um, the French have had to move to Niger. That's what they've been doing. But I must say they haven't stopped intervening inside Mali. My sources tell me that across the border attacks have been taking place. This is going to frustrate the government in Bamako, but let's see if they are capable of doing anything, particularly given that they are sitting on an unpayable debt, raises the question, just as with Sri Lanka, will there be debt relief for countries like Sri Lanka? Will there be debt relief for countries like Mali? Um, Antonio Guterres, UN Secretary General, flew into Niger right after um, the Bamako government got rid of the French from Mali, flew into Niger and announced there that terrorism is a global problem. Didn't say anything about the hunger crisis in the Sahel. Didn't say anything about the desiccation uh, of, the, of the Sahara and the Sahel, you know, the, uh, sorry, of the Sahel, the Sahara coming southwards, drought creating a lot of problems. Lots of problems in the world. Uh, but our hearts today are with our colleagues, Shirin Abu Akhle, killed by the Israelis on the 11th of May, buried today on the 13th of May, although her funeral attacked by the Israeli forces. Our hearts are with her, with her family, with colleagues at Al Jazeera who seem to lose people all the time. Um, they are with the family of Francisca Sandoval, shot, dead, killed yesterday, or she died yesterday, 12th of May in Santiago, Chile. This is give the people what they want. We come to you every week. We bring you the stories from around the world. Um, tell your friends about us. We exist for you. We exist only because journalism exists. So please stand up, condemn the killing of journalists. We shall overcome. We shall overcome.